Well, good morning. Have you ever had those uh, dreams where you've missed an assignment in high school English class and things are just going disastrously? I had three, count them, three dreams this week that I forgot my sermon notes this morning. And in one of them, they were flipped upside down and I, I couldn't move my arms. So if you see me doing this, someone just run up here and help me out because I'm still a little afraid it could happen. You never know. Uh, my name is Steve. I'm the assistant pastor here, and I'm so glad that you're with us. If you're visiting for the first time, we are uh, in the middle of our Lenten season, and we're going through a series uh, called The Prophets of Repentance. Lent is a time when we uh, intentionally step back and look deeply into our own sinfulness and our own frailty, where we look at the fact that we are all going to die someday and that there is a God who has things to say about the ways that we've lived. And so we're looking at Old Testament prophets each week um, to learn a little bit more about who this God is and what he has to say about our lives. Now, this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. So if you have your order of worship, I want you to just set it down next to you and don't look at it, okay? We're going to read the, the Old Testament reading towards the end of the sermon this morning, and, and there's a reason for that. Um, we're going to be looking at the book of Zephaniah this morning, and it's a book that, quite frankly, is going to make probably all of us feel really uncomfortable, and regardless of where we sit on the cultural or religious uh, spectrum, we will all most likely be offended by what Zephaniah has to say to us. So with that being said, let's begin with prayer, and then we'll start. Jesus, as we just sang, creation is groaning for your return. So much of our lives are lived in the coldness of fear. And for some of us, our hope is truly burning dim and low. I ask that this morning that you would return in this place through your word and through your table to feed us, to set us on fire, to give us faith and hope and love that do not diminish. I ask that we would hear your voice calling us back to you this morning. We ask in your name. Amen. So as I said, we're we're doing things a little bit differently by not reading our text up front. And, and, the text that we have in our bulletin is the classic Zephaniah text for preaching. Did you guys even know that there was a classic Zephaniah text for preaching? Uh, it's a very, it, it's, it's a wonderful sort of romantic poem. But if we don't understand the beginning of Zephaniah, then I'm afraid that, that as, as great and grand and romantic as this poem at the end is, we're really not going to catch the weightiness of it. And so if we're going to understand what's happening at the end, we've got to go back and get the beginning and try to understand what Zephaniah is on about, which means that I'm going to have to try and sum up the first three quarters of this book before we turn and look at our text. And we're also going to have to do some some cultural legwork because this guy is writing to a very different culture, very different people in a very different time. And so we have to work together to try and understand what is Zephaniah saying to people like us? And so this morning, we're going to look at three things, the imago me, the real enemy, and the silent divine comedy. 
This is how Zephaniah begins his prophecy. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble when I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed." for he will make a sudden end of all who live on earth. This is not exactly going to make the first chapter of the children's storybook Bible. As Brian mentioned last week, the very idea of God's judgment has most of us running for the hills. For some of us, the fact that God would be angry at anyone is enough to, to turn us off from Christianity or organized religion altogether. We, we look around at the culture wars that have polarized so many people, and we think, if that's how God is, if that's how he wants people to live, then I'm better off without him. I don't want to have anything to do with him. Others of us, though, on the surface, we might find it difficult to explain God's judgment to our surrounding culture, but we still understand it at its core. We still sort of get where it's coming from. And, and while we might not be caref- uh, or comfortable with the expression that it gets in sort of the popular level culture wars, we still have a sense that God needs to judge certain things about our world, that his judgment needs to fall on certain people. But I think when we actually brush past the very surface level of what prophets like Zephaniah or John the Baptist or Jesus have to say, those of us who understand parts of God's judgment will get just as offended as everybody else because if we're really honest with what they're saying, we realize that the finger is pointing as much at us as it is at anybody else. It turns out that no matter how religious or irreligious you are, we are all in the business of recasting God into the imago me. If the divine project could be summed up in this, that God created humanity in the imago Dei, in the image of God, then we could also say that the human project has been to create God in the imago me, the image of myself. Some of us create a grandfather God. Grandfather God is great. He hands out Werther's Originals candies. He winks at us when we don't eat our vegetables. Grandfather God, as Zephaniah describes him in the beginning of this book, is the kind of God that people talk about as if he's not going to do anything good and he's not going to do anything bad. 
he just kind of chuckles at our foibles and he turns his head as we disobey. This God is not really that concerned with most of the decisions that we make. I mean, least of all the decisions that we make in the privacy of our own bedrooms and our own homes. He doesn't even really mind if we call him by the wrong name. Others of us, though, are not so naive as to have a grandfather God. No, no. Our God has definite opinions on all sorts of issues. But strangely, none of his opinions seem to critique our own. Our God is the cultural project God. The God of the cultural project has no issues with our economics. He's firmly situated in the center of our political party or vision. He supports our wars and our nationalistic zeal. The God of the cultural project isn't some nimby-pimby grandfather God with no opinions. He is a God of judgment, namely our judgment. Of the people that have a cultural project God, Zephaniah says, they swear allegiance to Yahweh, to the true Lord, the true God. But at the same time, they're swearing allegiance to another king. They may say that God is the real God, but they have other motives, other ideas of who should be in charge. Friends, we all recast God in our own image because our highest allegiance is to ourselves. There were many prophets in Israel during the time of Isaiah and Amos, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and others, but almost all of these false prophets were condemned by God's true prophets because they had become prophets of a God of their own making, a God in their own image. It was either a grandfather God or a God of the cultural project. Whatever the king wanted God to be like, if he wanted a God that wouldn't really care the sorts of lives that he would live or the the sorts of decisions that the king would make, these false prophets would say, sure, he's a grandfather God. He, He just wants you to be happy. Whatever you want to do is fine. Whatever the civic leaders wanted to do, the prophets told them it was God's will for them to do it, regardless of whether they had actually heard from God or not. If you walk through life assuming that God is unconcerned with your personal choices, the words of Zephaniah that we just read should serve as a wake-up call, that God is not some senile, impotent grandfather winking at your missteps. But likewise, if you walk through life assuming that God agrees with everything you think, if you go to church every week and you walk out every week and none of your assumptions about the world have been challenged, or or worse, if they are challenged and you get your hair up so you go to another church with another preacher who agrees with what you think, then Zephaniah's words should cause you fear and trembling. God is no one's lackey. God is not here to lend credibility to your cause. His main purpose is not to make you happy nor to stamp your cultural project with divine approval. God is not Republican, nor is he Democrat. God is not a capitalist or a Marxist. He's not American, and he's definitely not Canadian. (laughs) Sorry. I just lost. I just, I just, he's not going to listen to anything I say. When we unreservedly assume that God is on our side, regardless of whatever argument we're involved in, we are turning him into a Macy's Day parade balloon. Sure, he's big and up in the sky above us, but we're the ones holding the strings. So humans have thought for thousands of years. But God's true prophets give us a much different picture of how God relates to his universe. God's true prophets tell us that the nations are like a drop in the bucket to God. 
that the Lord sits enthroned above the heavens, that the entire earth is his footstool. Just as you might measure out salt in the palm of your hand, so God measured out the seas of the earth. For all our patriotic enthusiasm, we are told that the nations are like dust on the scale. They don't even register. In comparison with the all-powerful God, nations like Rome or Greece or America or China don't even register on his scale. He blows them off. He wipes them away as if they were nothing. Rulers come and go like mosquitoes being flicked away. God is so other. He is so beyond anything we can imagine. He dwells in unapproachable light, and he dwells in terrible darkness. He upholds the entire universe by the power of his word. If the day of the Lord's vengeance wasn't so terrifying, it would be humorous how small we try to make him by making him the supporter of our causes. It's sort of like that scene from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. As cheesy as the graphics are, and as much as I would hope we would all disagree with sort of the magic hocus-pocus going on uh, in this movie. Do you remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? Here's Indiana. He's going. He's trying to get this, the Ark of the Covenant. But who's his enemy? Remember Rene Belloc, the guy with the funny accent? And they're all going after one thing. For Indiana and Belloc, they were searching after the Ark of the Covenant. And, and for our purposes, we'll use this as a metaphor for God. Okay? They're searching after the Ark of the Covenant because of archaeology, because they love discovering new things, and, and it's all about kind of the big win for them. But they're working for two very different government agencies. Belloc is working for the Nazis, who have their very clear ideas of what they want to do with the Ark. And Indiana is working for the Allies, who not only want to thwart what the Nazis are going to do, but they kind of want to have it for their own as well. And in that scene at the end, when, when God shows up, when Belloc opens the ark to see God, God is there, and he is a consuming fire. He pays tribute to no one, and he is in no one's debt, and the day of his reckoning is a terrifying thing. Having heard my fair share of fire and brimstone preaching, I've, I have to clarify here. Zephaniah is not saying that the terrifying day of God's wrath is coming down on them, on those people, on our enemies, on the others, the outsiders. No, God's wrath is coming on all people. Zephaniah, like many of the minor prophets, started in, in, he started talking about the day of God's wrath, and his audience in Judah or Jerusalem was nodding along saying, yeah, that's right. He's coming for our enemies. He's going to get them. Pretty soon, we're going to be free because God's going to judge all of you. And without even realizing it, the minor prophets especially have zeroed in past all of Israel's enemies right onto Israel herself. And their response is to murder these prophets that tell them something they didn't want to hear, that the finger is pointing right at them. And the finger is pointing right at you. It's not pointing at the person next to you or down the pew from you. It's not pointing at your brother or your parents or your political enemies. It is pointing at you because you have tried to remake God in your own image. I have tried to remake God in my own image. And when we are faced with his otherness, with his supremacy, supremacy, excuse me, we should be very, very afraid. We should be afraid that we have tried 
to calm him down and to put him into our own little boxes. But if we're to make sense of what Zephaniah does next, he issues this call to repentance. After saying that God is going to come and just wipe out everything, he then issues a call to repentance. And if we're going to understand that, we've got to do a little bit more digging. And especially if you're sitting here thinking, well, Steve, thanks for confirming it. The God of the Old Testament, or maybe just the Christian God in general, is a vindictive, violent brute that I want nothing to do with. I urge you, please stick with me. Stick with me. Because Zephaniah has a much bigger message than just that. Because, you see, if we're coming to this text with a backstory swimming about in our heads that tells us that God dislikes certain people, and so he's uncontrollably angry with them, and then he likes other people, and so they can pretty much do what they want because he's okay with them, then we have failed to truly understand the biblical narrative. The biblical description of human history is a story of an all-powerful, eternal, holy, triune God who creates a beautiful world. This world is an echo of his creativity. It's an echo of his majesty and his joy. And within this world, God places his emissaries, his ambassadors, and he tasks his ambassadors with reflecting his mission, reflecting his attributes out into his creation. He tasks them with imaging his joy and creativity, and he imbues them with a sense of joy at being in his presence, living in his world, partnering with him and enjoying beauty and majesty and love. God sets his ambassadors on a pathway of life with him. But rather than enjoy his world and their place in it, God's ambassadors go off the rail. The allure of being their own gods, of recasting God in their own image was too strong, and they cut themselves off from the giver of life. And subsequently, the mission of God, in a sense, has been thwarted because we have tried to shut him out of his own world that he created to live in with us. We have refused to acknowledge him rightly. Instead, we recreate him in our own minds. And even though God would be perfectly within his rights, perfectly within his rights to sweep away his entire creation, to clear out his entire project because of our rebellion, thankfully he is patient and merciful and wise. You see, God identifies the real enemy within his creation. In many ways, I am reminded of God when I think of a neighbor that Lindsay and I had when we first moved to Portland. For anonymity's sake, I'll call him John. John was an older man who had all sorts of great stories. He had a really easy laugh. He was so fun to be around. He never had a bad word to say about anybody except our landlady. He could not stand her. And so he would always complain about her, but everybody else, he just smiled and chuckled and he would sing. He played the keyboard. He was just this amazing older guy. And as we got to know John, we came to find out that his son actually lived in our building right upstairs. And it was like a a tenplex, so it wasn't very big of a building. And so when we figured out who his son was, we kind of would notice that he was sort of an odd guy, really difficult to talk to. And he sometimes would hang out with with John, but he mostly just kind of kept to himself and rode a mountain bike around town and um, didn't really talk to anybody else in the building. As we learned more about John's story and got to know him, it, it, it came out that he'd actually worked very hard for years. He had saved up a great retirement. He owned two or three different houses. But after years and years of being taken advantage of by his son, who was an addict, John had lost everything. He had lost all of his houses, all of his retirement, and he was living in this tiny 
low-rent apartment with a roommate just to try and get by. But as a result of John's sticking with his son, despite losing everything, John's son was now sober. They had a relationship again. And you see, if John had looked at his son as the enemy, the solution would have been to just clear his son right out of his life and to never talk to him again. But John realized that his son wasn't the enemy. It was the addictions that had mastered him. You see, when families and friends of addicts hold interventions and they rehearse all of the ways that the addict has hurt them, they're not doing it to be vindictive. They're doing it to help the addict see the truth. In some senses, it probably seemed to John that that detoxing his son, watching his son's body go through that amount of pain, had to seem very, very inhuman at the time. And yet what John realized is that on the other side of that pain was life for his son. Friends, if God looked at humanity as his enemies, the solution would be perfectly simple. Clear them away. Get rid of all of them once and for all. But the real enemy in God's world is sin and death, in whose grips we lie, unable to bring ourselves life. But to think that God is your enemy who wants to crush you under his thumb is to fail to recognize that you are your own enemy. You are being crushed under your own slavery, your own attempts at playing God. God does not want to destroy you. He wants to destroy evil. He wants to destroy death. And the way that he does it is remarkable. And this is how Zephaniah ends as a silent, divine comedy. This is our Old Testament reading. Sing, daughter Zion, Shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Just when it seems like Zephaniah has completely hunkered down, awaiting the day of God's wrath, pleading with people to repent, he is overwhelmed with God's love for humanity. Zephaniah tells us right before this passage that we've printed here that God is going to bring people from all nations, not just Israel and Judah, but all nations, even their enemies. He will bring them in and they will become his people. And now, now, people, shout, scream with delirious joy. Let gladness spill out of your hearts like a champagne bottle that has been shaken up too much. Because the Lord This very same God who treads like a warrior, this consuming fire has entered your midst, not to consume you, but to purify you and to free you. In one movement, he takes away your punishment and he defeats the enemy 
that made you worthy of punishment in the first place. The enemy is sin, and the punishment is death. In many ways, the death of Jesus embodies the day of the Lord. And it was everything we expected, and it's nothing that we expected. But Jesus, the man, the God-man, the new Israel, takes away our punishment by taking on our punishment. He defeats our enemy through his own death. And so we laugh, and we cry, and we shout, and we dance. And as ludicrous as our behavior may be in the delirium of this good news, as uncouth and as unpresbyterian as it may seem, it is nothing compared to how God reacts to us. In fact, the way that God reacts to us is so ludicrous that even though the language in Hebrew is fairly straightforward, Translators for years have nuanced their translations of this passage that we just read so as not to portray God in a weird or negative light. Now, I've had several jobs in my life where I basically talk for a living. Talking is not usually a problem. It's the shutting up for me. But when, when Lindsay and I first met, um, through, through a series of amazing events that, that I don't have time to get into, I knew without a shadow of, of a doubt I was going to marry this woman. I knew it. I had never been so sure of anything in my life. And so we decided we, we'd been hanging out as friends for a while, and we, we kind of knew that we liked each other, and so we were going to have the, the DTR, the Define the Relationship, the I Like You Talk. And up until this point, I had never really had a problem talking to girls. I mean, I, not that they would go out with me, but I could talk to them, right? <laughs> and so we meet up, and we're going to walk around downtown Salem. We walked around for 45 minutes, and I, I couldn't say anything. And we finally went to this place that, that had some chairs and a window. And I sat down in this chair and I stared out the window. And I was just this stuttering, stammering schoolboy. I could not get it out because I liked her so much, I couldn't say anything. Zephaniah tells us at the end of his prophecy to shout and sing and be overjoyed because the Lord is with you. He says, Don't be afraid. God is in your midst. He is like a hero savior, and he rejoices over you with singing. And the phrase that gets translated all sorts of ways in the original language means something like this. He is quiet over you in his love. He is quiet over you in his love. There's no way of explaining this. This is the same God that we've been talking about all morning, the, the all-powerful judge and ruler of the universe. He is undone with his love for you. He sits unable to speak because he loves you so much. You, not the person next to you, not the person down the pew, not your brother or your parents or your political enemy, you. He loves you, not a better version of yourself, not the version of yourself that you present to other people in hopes of being loved. God knows you better than you think, and he is undone in his love for you. God's love is not the obligatory love of a parent or a grandparent that might overlook your foibles. It is the passionate, overwhelming love of a romantic who smiles to himself, unable to speak. He is so enraptured in love. Friends, Jesus is with us in this place this morning, and he is beckoning us, saying, Oh, children, 
You, you who think you know better than I do. You who try to remake me in your image. You who buck against my plans for you. How I long to gather you to myself as a hen who gathers her chicks under her wings. As frightening as it may be to believe, God is quiet in his love for you. Like a groom overwhelmed at the sight of his bride. The story of the world is not a tragedy, it's a comedy. It is the ultimate fairy tale that ends with a wedding and a happily ever after. Let's pray. Father, it is so difficult for us to come to terms with our sinfulness. It is almost impossible for us to let go of the rights that we think we have over you, ourselves, and other people. But when we see how powerful you are and how deeply broken we are, it causes us fear. And strangely, it is almost as difficult for us to truly believe that you love us as it is to believe that we are broken. It is so hard to believe that you are truly quiet in your love over us, that you sing over us, that you rejoice over people like us. But I ask that through your spirit, you would give us faith to believe that this is true. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.